Questions from John 7. Jesus' gospel invitation. Either I was really clear or really opaque. I'm not sure which one. Um, oh, Owen. I had a question about verse 39. Yeah. So do we believe before we receive the Holy Spirit? Yes. Can you explain that? Yes. Um, let me find a verse for you in John, in John I believe. Hold on. Um, give me one second. I just got to find it. Yeah. Okay. Go to. Hold on. Unsagun. Um. Here we go. Yeah, John fourteen. Go to John fourteen. And that's verse. Probably should have stayed on my seat, huh? John fourteen seventeen. Uh, yeah, John fourteen seventeen. I believe is right. Uh, okay. Okay. Um, so start in fifteen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So the spirit is at work amongst those who are coming to faith externally. And after they come to faith, he indwells internally. So it's not as though one part's absent the spirit's work and one part is with the spirit's work. It's the difference of with and in. Does that, make, does that distinction make sense, or are you asking a more fine so question? So the Spirit can work externally? Yes. So it, it, here, go to, uh, where is it? Convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That is John 15, no, 16. Go to 16, right? Um, John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, here's his initial activity. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, when people are initially getting convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment, they have not come to faith in in Christ. They're not yet justified, forgiven. So no, he's not indwelling them. So that ministry of the Holy Spirit of conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment would be not while indwelling, but would be, for lack of a term, with, external, applying, working on the hearts of people from the outside. So if it's happening externally, it will happen internally? I believe so, yes. I don't believe God starts something and doesn't complete it. Now I'm using the language of Ephesians or Philippians. He began a good work and you will complete it. Philippians, there we go. Thank you. Yes. So, no, it's, it's, a, good, it's a good question. Like, like Jesus has already made it clear you're born in John 3. You must be born of the Spirit. So there's an activity of the Spirit of birthing that takes place. What he's talking about is he... So go, go, to, uh, go to Jeremiah 31. I, I, I skipped this reference because I, I, it seems good time-wise to do it, but I'd like to look at it briefly now. I talked about Jesus' death purchasing the new covenant 
And the passage in the Old Testament that uses that language is Jeremiah 31, paralleled with Ezekiel 36. Um, So Jeremiah 31, here we go. 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I'll remember their sins no more. So here the promises of a new heart turn to Ezekiel 36, where it gets expanded upon a little further. We won't jump all over the Old Testament. Let's, these are... these. Two main Old New Covenant passages are, are worth being familiar with in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36. Verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle you with clean water, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. So the reason I started Jeremiah is Jeremiah titles this new heartness coming in the future, the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, I think, is clearly referring to the same thing. And now we get added to the new covenant. I will put my spirit within you as a component of that new covenant. I think this is the passage Jesus has in mind when he says, unless you're born of water and the spirit. Here's the passage. It connects cleansing with water and the indwelling of the spirit. So um, given that then... This is the new covenant promise is the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's birthing and working, and Jesus is indicating to the disciples it's not as though the people in the Old Testament were on their own. The the work of the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, is different, and it's intensified such that he can compare it to multiple rivers indwelling you. And so the, the, the clear implication is an increase, a superabundance. But yes, the shift goes from for lack of a better term, external to internal. Um, does that get where you're going? Or Yeah. Okay. Cool beans. And, and I'd commend to all of you to, whether you write it down, whether you memorize it or whatever, but, but Jeremiah 31, 31 and Ezekiel 36 as the two primary new covenant passages are worth knowing how to find quickly. They get referenced a lot in the New Testament. Um, okay. Questions on any of that or anything else we've covered this morning? Dave Kingery. I'm just thrilled to see my brother. Okay. Um, What do we got? Questions, thoughts, complaints? Luke, oh, sorry, Lucas, and then over here. Lucas is first. He's right there. Yes, Lucas. Okay. And second, John. Second, John. If anyone comes to you, and does not bring this teaching 
do not receive him into your house or give him any greetings. Indeed. Indeed. And there's a hand over here. We got, oh, Don. I appreciated, uh, we talked about rivers, that it not only is to satisfy us, but that we are to to, to be a, a conduit for others mm. Uh, mm. of God's yeah. fullness of his blessing. Of his, uh, well, pr- cool, praise God. And I'm arguing that it may not be clear in the event of Jesus speaking in the temple in John 7, that implication may not be clear. It may be suggested. But as John speaking to us, he said this about the Spirit who was yet to fall. Now, that, so if we can then import what we know about Acts 2, all of a sudden the picture of a river going out to others seems to make a lot of sense. Like, huh, Spirit fell on 12 people, and in an afternoon 12 people goes to 4,000 people. <laughs> right? So given that knowledge, I think that's why I saved the second implication for then, because I think that John linking to Acts 2, John linking to the future giving the Spirit, gives the support that what is only a possibility in the first instance. I mean, it's possible, it just could be. He's just using super abundant language, amping up a spring to a river. But then when you see it in Acts, like, no, 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 the metaphor of a river goes further than just that. The metaphor of a river has the notion of spreading and going out to people. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Indeed, <laughs> indeed, indeed. So, uh, I've I've uh, heard people abuse the "come as you are" statement yeah. by saying, "Well, Christ accepts me as I am," and then they continue living right. however they want. But you did point out that when you come to Christ, you are traveling in a direction, traveling away from something, and the way that Christ puts it. Um, talking about coming to the water, obviously there's a thirst. Right. And in other places it says come out from the darkness and into the light. Right. Right. And there definitely should be a change in a person when they yeah. turn to Christ that um, that when God begins a good work in you, yeah. he continues it. Right. No, no amen. I, I think the, the truth of the gospel finds whoever you are is if you want to picture a picture of someone using the, we could use a lot of imageries, but using the imagery of sucking water out of a mud puddle and Christ comes right up to them. Turn to me and be saved. He finds you right where you are. Can you come to him while you're still trying to get the last bit of moisture out of the mud? No. Turn it, turn to John three. I know we keep, I know we keep repeating this, but I think it's so important because in your dealings with, with those who are unbelievers, the argument will be, on their part, they're not coming because of a lack of credulity. And if that's the case, then what we need to do is find better arguments, better answers, better um, explanations. We need to overcome objections. And that's all good. I think we should do that. But taken on its own terms, John's gospel indicates why don't people come to the light? And it's moral. It's not intellectual. So I'll read it one more time. John 3.19. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. People loved. It's about the affections. It's about the desires. And it's about sin. They loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. To what effect? 
For everyone who hates, who does wicked things, hates the light and does not come to it. Why don't people come to the light? They love the darkness. And so, taken on its own terms, John's explanation, John is telling us why Jesus' people, given his miracles, given his signs, why the vast majority of them refuse to come, they love the darkness. Not, well, if Jesus had just done more convincing miracles, if Jesus had just given better explanations, no. Um, And so, any presentation of the gospel that, that would allow someone to think, you can still love, crave, worship the darkness and have Christ, is... At odds with John's, John's saying, the thing that stops you from coming to Christ is you love the darkness. So we don't want to present a gospel that lets, you love the darkness, you can keep loving the darkness, and I got a gospel for you, is nonsense, um, in, in John's terminology. So yeah, it comes to you wherever you are. You're in a crack house, you're in a, you're in a, you're, you're, think of however broken, corrupt you can be. Turn to me and live. But that turning, that coming has to happen, right? Um, so yes. So there is a truth. There's no preparatory works you need to do to become a Christian first. Have a good week. Lay off the hooch, whatever. It, it, you, you, right now. But turn to Christ. Come to him. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for that clarification. Yeah. Any, any other any thoughts on that? Any of that? Oh, Carol. Well, just on a related note, another verse you just preached on recently, John seven seventeen. If any man's will is to do his will, yeah. that is God's will, he'll know whether the teaching is yeah. from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So if you, a person is willing to do his will, that's right. the right. point. That, well, that's, that's the thing I like about, that's the, thing I like about the, uh, the different metaphors. What thirst has is it's more than simply a desire to escape judgment. So Jesus can at times say, simply flee the wrath to come. So the Tower of Siloam falls. And people are like, hey, what do we make of this? He's like, do you think those people are worse sinners than you? You two need to repent or you, you two will, will perish. Flee the wrath to come. But, there's a, but if the fleeing of the wrath isn't including a hungering and thirsting for who Jesus is and what he offers, then at least in the way he's framing it in John's gospel, that's a deficiency. So, so again, if you think of a faith like a diamond, there's a lot of different ways to look at faith. It's sort of like eating. It's sort of like drinking. It's sort of like moving. It's sort of like removing a veil. It's sort of like receiving a gift. It's like, right, these are all biblical metaphors of what it means to believe. And so John is, is giving us different angles because we've seen people exercise something that John can call faith and it not benefit them. We're going to see a big group of them in John 8. When I, when I said last week that the people who believed in him as the Christ... Um, we'll see, at least some subset of them are going to be caught up in John 8, 30 and 31. So Jesus said to the Jews that had believed in him, and at the end of that discourse, they're trying to kill him. So that's a better response, but we'll see. So John has, D.A. Carson in this commentary puts it this way. In John's gospel, there's believing and there's believing. And John is showing us these different metaphors and angles to give us clarity. I mean, James can talk about, well, in the sense the demons believe. Is it biblical to say the demons have faith? It does. It is. That's, believe and faith biblically are the same Greek root word. So there's no distinction. The pistuo, pistis family. We just don't have a verb for faith. You can't faith something. So we switch to believe. Um, so, but in Greek, it's just you would faith things. There's faith, and then faith would be a verb. 
And so we swap between faith and belief, but they would be meaning the same thing. And so, yeah, we can speak of a faith that doesn't save. We can speak of demonic faith. We can speak of the faith of those in John 2, the faith we're going to see in John 8. And so John, again and again with all these metaphors, is this is what we're talking about. This is what we're talking about. So um, it's more than simply I don't want to be punished. Do you want to please? Do you want to please God? Do you want to do his will? Do you want to be because, and I'll get back to reconciliation. There is no reconciliation without us being willing to adopt our right relationship. That's the definition of reconciliation, right? Use an example. My son comes to me and says, Father, uh, I don't want to do what you tell me to do. I don't think I should have to do what you tell me to do. Um, Go pound sand. If that's his final and settled position, what's he doing? He's rejecting our relationship as father and son. He's saying, whatever I'll be to you, it won't be a son. And whatever you'll be to me, it won't be a father. Or I'd like to redefine father and son, right? So we're estranged. Our right relationship isn't happening. Would there be any meaningful way in which I could say Abner and I have now become reconciled? Well, does he now want to be your son and, 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 and follow your leadership? Well, no, not at all. Well, then, no, we haven't reconciled anything. We could potentially renegotiate a new relationship, but there'd be no re, there'd be no return, there'd be no reconciliation. We'd have this new thing. Reconciliation, on, reconciliation only has meaning if it's the adoption of the formerly broken relationship. So God makes us in the garden, and he says, I'm going to provide for you, and I'm going to care for you, and I'm going to speak to you, and you're going to trust what I say, and, and you're going to follow it, right? That's, that's the breakdown in Eden, right? Don't eat from this tree. Um, our reconciliation with God necessarily means we're willing to fall back into our right relationship to him. So that, Jesus, does anyone's wills to do his will? Do you want to be reconciled with God would be another way of saying that? Well, then if that's the case, you'll know. But he doesn't have anything to offer for people that don't want reconciliation in that sense. Um, the demons would love to escape hell. I don't think the demons want reconciliation with God. But anyway, that's my supposition. Questions, thoughts, on any of that? Or any other things. I'll go back to my stool now. But okay. Oh, Dennis. Just a comment. I think uh, just the amazing love that God has for us—that He would save us, but secure our salvation by sending the Holy Spirit to live within us to seal us until the day of redemption and you know john 14 told the disciples who were really uh they were really uh, afraid and and mourning that jesus was going to die and he says it's to your advantage that i go away because the holy spirit's going to come and live within you and without the holy spirit we could not live with a christian life the holy spirit we that's why the bible says walk by the spirit and we always have that flesh but the you know, Romans 8 talks a lot about the Spirit, too. It, the, the amazing, just, we, we need to stop about that. The power that lives, it, isn't, isn't that verse the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us? Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's just remarkable yeah. that, that yeah. we have that Holy Spirit in us. And a lot of times we don't maybe take advantage of it or realize, you know, that, that that's, that's amazing. Well, and we stopped marveling at grace. I was talking with Jerry Spadell during the, the break time about this, but which, part of why I was emphasizing 
and, and again, when I talk about significance and meaning and self-worth and value, I'm not trying to mock or denigrate those things, but what, what you, what, what draws people to crisis, what's going to keep them. Um, and so there are no promises that you're going to have honor, respect, success, prosperity in this life. Right? Jesus promised that many of us are going to have persecutions and sufferings and things like that. Um, so if what you came to, and this is part of what's so pernicious about the uh, prosperity gospel that we export all over the world, is if you draw people to Christ, if a bunch of Westerners show up in their jets and their $5,000 suits with their Rolex, wa- Rolex watches, and Jesus has come to give you physical prosperity and health, if that's why you come to Christ, what's going to happen when you don't get it? Um, so Jesus' offer of satisfaction isn't satisfaction for every craving you and I might have. It's satisf- My argument is the language of thirsting in the Psalms is clearly thirsting for God. Um, and so that's what he's offering. And the temptation for us is we take, that becomes assumed. Like, yes, turn up to 11. Yes, 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 I'm forgiven and I'm restored and I'm adopted and I'm God's son. But what I really need to be happy is, and that's, the Israelites in the wilderness are a model of that for us. You know, why did, we, why did we leave Egypt? They had pots with meat and cheese, and we are sick of this manna. Like, and we look at that, and we're like, you, you knuckleheads, you, just, you were slaves. And with a powerful hand and, and with a mighty arm, he, he stretched it out and destroyed the army of Pharaoh and adopted you and entered into a covenant with you. And they're like, yeah, but they had Philly cheesesteaks. Um, meat, pots of meat and cheese. One of my professors, was it Boyd? Yeah, Boyd. Yeah, B- Professor Boyd. It's like, they got cheesesteaks, you know. And this manna, we're kind of sick of it. And so how quickly, and they're models, it's just how quickly what we should be in awe and amazement at, we just take for granted and then move on to the next thing we want. But then you read your Bible and realize, well, they're just models of us, right? I mean, if, if you're reading your Old Testament, going, those guys are stupid, man, and you're not realizing those guys are me, you're, you're, keep, keep working at it. Or talk to a friend, they'll tell you. Um, <laughs> right? Um, but that, that's, that's, that's the other temptation, is, um, is Jesus will satisfy you, you and your desires if, if, if your desires are in a right ordering, you know? Um, and, and yes, there's lament for other things. There's lament for, I mean, it's, it's not as though if you have peace with God, there's no possibility you could have sorrow. The Psalms are filled with people of peace with God and are crying out and lamenting. But it's, it's about ballast, to use a nautical imagery, that the, the whole point of the rudder and the weight is the stability from the rudder and the ballast. The, if the most important things are in place, if your priorities are ordered rightly, then when lesser things are denied that can produce real suffering, and there's no question, barrenness scripturally is a blight that people lament and cry out against and God takes compassion on. There's no question. Uh, the example again and again and again, um, Hannah, Samuel's mother, no question. Um, but with ballast in, in your worldview, if that's, that's not her number one top priority because she's result, rejoicing in God. And, and so a rightly ordered affections, there's room for lamenting other things. The danger is if the most important thing, if the thing at the top of your priority pyramid is whatever else and it's not God, the gospel will disappoint you and you will not be satisfied by it. So I don't want, I don't want to hear um, 
there's no room for any other suffering and sorrow and want because you have Jesus. Well, in a sense, yes, but there's many biblical examples of, of suffering and longing in their right proportion and ordering. Amen. Amen. The problem is when and we've met people where it, it's clear they've taken a, a mid-level value and raised it to an ultimate level value. And at a certain point, it becomes, this is your God, right? This is your highest value. This is, this is the thing you must have. Um, you know, I think we see a picture of that with getting back to the childbirth imagery with, um, with uh, Rachel, right? Give me children or I die. And God said, yes. And she died in childbirth. I mean, no, that's not an accident. <laughs> that's not an accident in the text. Um, that she, okay. God answers her according to her request. Um, so anyway, Greg. Just wanted to, <clears throat> excuse me, to amen that example of Hannah that you would think. Oh, Samuel, of course. Yes, 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 yes. yes. So you, I could not let that go. That was, it's, there's, there's a lot left there. Um, the, 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 there. You would think, you know, when you see her weeping in the temple, when Eli yeah. mistakes her for a drunken woman, you would think that her number one desire and her number one care and concern in this world is a son. The Lord gives her a son, and what does she do? She shows that her number one desire in the world is the Lord. I'm going to give him back to the Lord. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Yeah, Hannah, by the way, Hannah's prayer sets up Mary's Magnificat. If you go, if you go read Luke 2 and Mary's Magnificat, it is built upon Hannah's prayer. Um, and Hannah is doing some biblical theology. She knows about a Messiah and a king, and they're the same person. Like, Hannah's put together some stuff, man, that the Pharisees of Jesus' day hadn't put together. Um, so, yeah, um, I remember going through Luke like, man, Mary's just kind of recasting Hannah's prayer in her own terms. The, 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 the connection's huge. Lee. And talking about how supposedly we don't have to suffer or, you know, have any bad experiences, yeah. there is an actual phrase called the fellowship of his suffering. And think of your own life. And when do you, when are you closest to the Lord? It's when you're miserable and when you're begging for help or you're relying right. only on him. I mean, that's, it's, I mean, happy times are great. Of course, we all love those, but I, I find in my own life that that's when I'm more, Christ becomes more meaningful to me. Mm. No, 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 amen. Um, usually, I mean, this is, this is even in Deuteronomy. God tells the Israelites, I'm not going to give you the land all at once, lest you forget me. He gives to us piece by piece. Um, and I, I think in my pastor's pen, I commented, every day I've not had pain in my shoulder. I should have been thanking God. Um, it took pain in my shoulder to remind me of that. And I'm quite confident the second the pain actually finally goes away, I'll in short order forget. But, I mean, you know what it's like to have a part of you hurting and like, oh, Lord, please make this pain go away. Okay. Would I give proportional thanks for having it? <laughs> you know, we, but we're the, they have meat and cheese in the pots, so people, right? Yeah. Okay. No, excellent. So, Jeremy. Oh, where are we at? Where? Oh, um, Jennifer. Hi. Speaking about the Holy Spirit, the passage on do not quench the Spirit, could you just expound upon um, things we could be watching for in our own lives to ensure that we are not trying to quench the Spirit in our lives? Sure. Um, there's a couple of verbs applied to what we can do to the Holy Spirit. We can quench the Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit. Um, those are two at least. So God's, and, and then Paul's imagery in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 
Um, you think, how do you grieve the Holy Spirit? Paul, it's, it's really interesting in 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul warns against sleeping with prostitutes. And he doesn't take the tact, it's forbidden, it's unlawful. He, he takes a different tact. He could. He takes a different tact. You're a Christian, the Holy Spirit's in you. Do you realize who you're also uniting with a prostitute when you sleep with her? Would you unite Christ with a I mean, that's his tact. I think it's partly because he's dealing with people who've bought into some platonic dualism that are basically saying, well, it's just my body. It doesn't matter what my body does. Do you realize your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit? And so... Like that's where he ends it with, right? So that's the way he comes out. So certainly we can grieve the Holy Spirit that way. Quenching the Spirit, I think, would be um, the equivalent of silencing, um, ignoring, minimizing his ministry. The language of Scripture would be something like Peter filled with the Spirit. So the notion seems to be the Spirit's, the Spirit's ministry in our life is something like, and I'll qualify this, intoxication, because the two are put at odds. Do not be drunk with wine, that's dissipation, but instead be filled with the Spirit. With a clear implication, you can't do both at the same time. Not this, but this. Um, so in what way is being drunk with wine like being filled with the Spirit? Not in the way some charismatics would have you be Holy Spirit drunken on the ground rolling around. But the notion is when you're under the influence of alcohol, it affects everything. It affects your thinking. It affects your, it, it affects your speech. It affects your balance. Every part of your comportment is affected by alcohol okay i think every part of your comportment when you're filled with the spirit is is controlled by by that uh, by him so the the picture is of a waxing and waning this is the new testament language peter was filled with the spirit so it's not like the spirit ever goes away but he can have more or less control of you he can exercise more or less influence over you and so quenching the spirit, I think, would mean something like minimizing, nullifying his spirit's influence over you, which I think for a time can happen. That would be my best understanding. Think That would be ignoring him, sinning, hardening your heart, things like that. Um, but but oh, Not reading your Bible? Not reading your Bible, sure, yeah. Uh, Patty. Would you consider doing an ABF class on the Holy Spirit? Yes. I only said I'd consider it. <laughs> no, no, no. Let me, yeah, let me, let me get, get back to you. Well, and how's about like the New Covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit? That would be, I mean, the Holy Spirit, but with an emphasis on the Holy Spirit's New Covenant ministry in our lives. Um, yes, Zach. Um, related to you saying like you know alcohol affects everything, the Holy Spirit should affect everything yeah. about um, our body, our life. Um, it reminded me of a devotional I was reading recently where. Um, the guy was saying it's a, something we can fall into as Christians where we think about salvation saved us, you know, at some point a long time ago. We're thankful for that. And salvation is going to take us to heaven sometime in the future. We're pretty excited about that. Yeah. But then we kind of forget about or we kind of like don't let it really affect any practical part of our right. life right now. Right. Except maybe going to church on Sunday. And so he was saying, like, you know, it affects everything, your job, your marriage, your parenting, your neighbor's. Um, you know, everything that you're doing in your life or like finances, you know, it's like it could be easy to think, well, I don't pray about my finances. I just, you know, get a good book or ask people for advice. But the Holy Spirit should be affecting every single thing in our life, everything that we do. Yeah, let me let me take what you said and put an even sharper point on it. A- amen. 
So when the Bible speaks of salvation, it can speak of it in the past, present, and future tense. So in the past um, and future, for your salvation is closer now than when you first believed. Future, sorry, Romans 13. Um, We've been saved. Philippians tells us to work out our salvation. We are being saved. And so one way of looking at this, um, if you want to zoom in, is what what Paul speaks of as justification most clearly in Romans would be a a past or a one-time act, an instantaneous one-time act. It's not a progress process of reconciliation and forgiveness with God. That is where the forgiveness is the primary emphasis of justification, being declared righteous, having the sentence of hell removed, having alienation from God withdrawn. A restoration. So Romans 5 1, therefore, having been just, past tense, having been, not I am being, having been justified by faith, we are having peace with God. And so the gospel, we talk about salvation, and probably our most common category for salvation is that forgiveness. There's also, we will be saved, future. The, uh, Romans 13, the day of our salvation is nearer now than we first believed. And so there's a future element. We will be transformed. We will be purified. We will be with him. We'll be known as we are known. We'll no longer look through a glass dimly, right? But we, when he appears, we shall be like him. And that's, do you want to go to heaven? And, and do you want to be like Jesus? And you want to be holy? It's the middle piece. What Paul talks about, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that the New Testament most commonly refers to as sanctification or holification, um, it's just the it's the it's the uh, word for holiness made into a verb. Greek, Greek they just do that in Greek. They take nouns and just verb them. No, it's the Great Commission is disciplize the nations. They just take the verb disciple. They take the word disciple and just it's a verb now. Um, so holiness becomes a verb. We, we call it sanctification. Um, and so the gospel is the. All three aspects put together. The gospel is God offers, Jesus offers to satisfy your longing for him, to be reconciled with him, that your debt of sin be removed. You will no longer go to hell. In this life, you can and will become more like him, conformed to his image, with that conforming being completed and perfected, either at your death or at his coming so that you can be with him. Are you interested in that? The danger is presenting a gospel that simply says, do you not want to not go to hell? Would you like to go to heaven? And leave that middle bit out. And you've got people who are like, I love my other gods. I love my Canaanite gods. Um, and so you can be like, you can, by implication, you can keep worshiping your Canaanite gods. You just won't go to hell and go to heaven. That middle part makes it clear. Do you long to do God's will? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you, do you want to be pleasing to him? That, that's the middle question. The demons would sign up for the do not want to go to hell package. Absolutely. They tremble, right? Um, do you want to be reconciled with God? Do you want, or do you hate his righteousness? They're like, no, we hate his righteousness. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Five minutes. And last questions. Last, last takers. Okay. I can find something if you don't got nothing. I got stuff. Hold on. Um, one second. Anything? Anybody? Okay. I want to read that quote from Piper. If, by the way, you can get this on Audible. I think this is a very helpful book. What is Saving Faith? John Piper. I'd like to read that quote in full this time. So again, think of all the different, the different, and I, I'd encourage you, let me pause this thing. I'd encourage you to, Endeavor to broaden 
your biblical language and terminology for, for the gospel and for salvation. Uh, the Bible is rich with metaphorical language. So for, I'll give you an example. Jesus talks about being born again in John 3. I would argue that being born again or born from above in John 3 is the same thing that if 2 Corinthians 4 is talking about, having a veil removed, which is the same thing which Titus talks about as being regenerated, which is the same thing as having a heart of stone being replaced by a heart of flesh in Ezekiel uh, or a circumcised heart in Jeremiah, that all these are metaphors and biblical ways of speaking of the same reality. And by looking at them all, um, we get a fuller orbit picture of what's being talked about. And so I absolutely believe in justification by faith and faith alone. Not, not, you don't need to do anything to be saved. And yet when the Bible gives us a rich plurality of metaphors of what that means, it's like a coming to. It's like an eating. It's like a, a resting, Hebrews. Um, it's like a seeing. We beheld the glory of the Lord. It's like a drinking, it, it, and you can go on. I, I'd encourage you to broaden and let these imageries f- fill in your understanding because the $8 billion question today more than ever is what does it mean to believe? I think like C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis writing in the 40s was talking about how even in his day there was this notion that you could believe X and live Y. With postmodernism, one of the one of the, the lay level end user consequences is people are far more comfortable today with believing contradictory notions, um, completely at peace with it. I mean, my my wife was in a, a teacher education class where, like, back to back, the classes were one: we must not impose cultural values on immigrant students because that would be hegemonic and imperialistic. And the very next class. I think it was the same teacher was telling them how we get, really got to make sure this one ethnic group of students learn to respect female teachers because they don't in their culture. And like, you, you get that you're contradicting yourself. Quite comfortable with that. And, and today people are far more comfortable with, yeah, sure, I believe X, Y, Z, and I live ABC and I, whatever else. So more than ever, what does it mean to believe? Anyway, so here's Piper. His whole book is trying to unpack those biblical metaphors. The picture of coming to Christ adds the picture of receiving Christ. What it adds is the movement of the soul towards Christ, in addition to the movement of Christ towards the soul. We have seen the soul's movement is the awakening of desire for the received. That desire is a motion of the soul. It is the motion of a God-given thirst putting lips to the fountain of received water. It is the motion of God-given hunger placing its tongue on the richness of received bread. It is the motion of an embrace opening its arms to enclose the received Savior. It is the motion of leaning into the light of received glory. It is the motion of the glad and eager soul opening the door for the friend, the helper, the Lord, the teacher. I would venture a guess about why John uses the verb believe 98 times in his gospel and never once uses the noun belief. That's interesting all of the occurrences of the faith word group in John are verbs, zero nouns. There's believing, we're faithing. Um, Let me read that again. I would venture to guess why John uses the verb believe 98 times in his gospel and never uses the noun belief or faith. What you've just read is my guess. John loves to foreground the spiritual act 
of the soul in receiving and coming to and drinking and eating and loving. He prefers to speak of believing this way rather than as a state or position of the soul. Believing is not so much a condition or state as it is an act of the soul, a spiritual imbibing, ingesting, embracing, and savoring. Believing is not even a state of satisfaction in Christ or a state of pleasure in Christ. Rather, John wants to emphasize that we never put down the cup of living water as though we've had enough. We never lay aside the loaf of heaven's bread as though we were stuffed. We never pull the curtain on the light of the world as though we'd seen enough glory for now. Believing doesn't do that. Faith is receiving constantly and coming constantly. Christ is ever giving himself as drink and food and light for our souls. We are ever putting our lips to the cup and our tongue to the bread and our hours eyes to the light. Life in Christ is like a branch and a vine, not a full cup sitting on the table beside a ready pitcher. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing, John 15. Believing is what a branch does in the vine. It drinks, it eats, it never stops. It abides to eternity. I found that to be a very helpful quote, and I commend to you What is Saving Faith by John Piper. On that note, we'll call it a break for today. Next week, we have our guest, Perspective Missionaries. Um, God bless, Godspeed, and good day.